0: Happy Halloween and happy NaNoWriMo. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of this right-minded show. And I'm popping in to announce some cool news, which is that Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black, will be teaching part of the Mastering Craft class for Memoirists that starts this week, November 1st, and goes each Tuesday through November. This is a class about finding and making meaning, and I'm super pleased that Piper will be teaching with me and Linda Joy while Linda Joy is on the mend from a recent surgery. If you're looking for a perfect side dish to your effort at NaNoWriMo, or in Memoirist's case, nano memo, join us for Mastering Craft, Finding and Making Meaning. The class is $125, everything is recorded, and we'll be covering why memoirists must show and tell, advanced narration, reflection and takeaway, and finally, meaning-making. We'd love to have you with us in November, and details can be found at www.magicofmemoir.com. And to everyone doing NaNoWriMo this month, Grant and I are too. And we welcome accountability friends. My handle is SheWritesBrook, and Grant's is Grant Faulkner. Also, check out Grant's profile because it impressively shows that he has written over a million words. We'll see you out there, and good luck.
1: Hello, craft-minded writers. I am Grant Faulkner of National Novel Writing Month, and I'm here with my co-host, the very crafty Brooke Warner. And we're delving into yet another episode of our craft-minded series. And we're doing the series to help people get ready to write their stories during NaNoWriMo or write their novels or memoirs anytime. But we're also doing this just because we love thinking about craft. So we wanted to give craft a special focus. And we initially set this up as a six-part series. But we wanted to do an episode seven today since we're on the precipice of NaNoWriMo. And we thought it would be great to have a NaNoWriMo writer, uh, thriller writer Andrea Bartz, talk about how she approached craft during a month of writing with abandon. But to kick things off, Brooke, I want to pause and tell a story to frame our craft discussion today. I'm in the process of designing this online course for Domestica. And then setting up my course structure, I'm going through a lot of the topics we talk about here about the writing process, such as how important it is to banish your inner editor and just write your rough draft, you know, not putting any sort Sort of perfectionist pressure on yourself because you can revise later and i included a very brief segment on craft in the course just to keep a few things in mind while writing but then my guide for the course told me he thought that the craft part was the most important part and that i should really beef it up and teach all about craft before people even set out to write their novels and and here's where i paused because i always say that the best way to learn how to write a novel is by writing a novel And I think the same thing goes for craft. You know, we've internalized a lot of craft without even attempting to learn it. You know, we've learned it almost unconsciously by reading books and watching movies. You might say that we know more about storytelling than any humans who have ever existed because our modern lives are essentially a study of storytelling in a way because of how pervasive stories are. So the one thing I don't want to do in this series is present craft as something that one must study and know all about before writing a book. It shouldn't be an obstacle. You shouldn't get hung up on it in the rough draft. And you shouldn't think you have to have a certification in craft before writing a novel or memoir. You know, it's actually something that I think is more pertinent for a revision. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about this, book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's also uniquely interesting that your guide for the course suggested you focus on craft, which is kind of similar to what LitHub said to us in doing this series, right? Because there was this idea, people love craft. And I do think it's twofold. Like on the one hand, it's really good to brush up on craft and to know about it. But I also think that there are so many barriers of which, you know, Andrea is going to speak to some as well, just to getting the work out on the page. You know, I think some people do kind of put that craft thing as like, oh, I have to learn and be an expert before I can ever write a book. And of course, that's not our ethos and certainly not on the precipice of NaNoWriMo, as you said, you know, where it's just all about getting it done. And so uh, initially, of course, you know, banishing that inner editor, like you said, in the long memoir classes that I teach, we also talk about, I mean, the inner critic and the inner editor you know, they maybe have the same energy, but I think the inner critic is more all-encompassing because the inner critic tells you about how awful you are, you know, <laughs> yeah. and all, all the worst things that are going to happen, you know, whereas the editor can be a little bit more specific to saying, maybe you're not a good writer. Uh And so I think it's super important to remember what you're talking about, that we have internalized craft that way, right? Without even realizing it, And it's also a reminder of why good readers make the best writers. I am constantly telling my memoir students, read more memoirs. It's so good and helpful to know other genres, uh, as well, of course, but the one that you're writing in most importantly, but it goes beyond reading because human beings are born storytellers. We consume stories in our everyday lives, like you said. And I'm just thinking also like interactions with friends and colleagues, shows we watch, movies we see. And so we have all these shapes and techniques in our minds without even being conscious of it. And I think this is super encouraging. You know, as I'm thinking about doing my own writing in NaNoWriMo, I need that kind of encouragement just to get on On to the page. And there's lots of writers who haven't had a formal writing education. Sometimes they're the best writers, uh, again, because they know how to tell a story. And then I totally agree with you that craft is something that students often start to get curious about more in depth once they've started writing or once they're well into it or even once they have a whole draft. So... I love craft. I do want to put that out there. There's a lot to know, but lack of expertise in this space should never hinder you from sitting down and practicing and just cultivating that love of self expression. So this is great grant. It's a very permission giving topic.
1: Permission is its own special craft, I think, actually. And today we're, you know, talking with Andrea Bartz and she talks uh, a lot about that. Like she did NaNoWriMo because she was afraid to start her novel, The Lost Knight. And I think the conversation with her is going to be especially interesting because she's a thriller writer. So things like plot and pacing and structure, you know, play large in her story. But she doesn't outline beforehand, so I'm super curious to see how she balances craft and the more playful aspects of just writing a rough draft. And here's what I'll say for myself about the interplay of craft and drafting. After I write my rough draft, which I prefer to call my discovery draft, the draft actually serves as a guide for me about where I need to shore up different craft elements. So the rough draft is a type of craft guide, in other words. And when I read it afterwards, I'll realize whether my story arc or pacing or characterization or dialogue are weak. And that's the moment I'll actually pull out a book on craft, uh, on a craft topic of some sort and analyze my story and think about how I want it to move and what shape I want it to have and why. Uh, and you might say that I that I write the first draft with a kind of very light consciousness of craft, mainly being focused on telling the story and tapping into my unconscious. And then I step back and go deeper with specific and very conscious craft things in mind. So In that way, craft really comes just like you said, Brooke, it comes through the refinement, you know, when you're when you're revising your novel. So I'm curious if this applies, if this is the same process that memoirists kind of follow, Brooke, the the crafting being more part of the revision after you got the raw material out.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, in the memoir classes uh, that we have, we're talking a lot about the different kinds of drafts. I mean, you'll everyone knows Annie Lamott's shitty first draft, famously. Mm-hmm. Uh, another favorite teacher of mine, Joshua Moore, he talks about the danger draft, which is the draft that no one will see. So you should just write dangerously and figure it out later. But to get everything out onto the page so that you're not censoring yourself, that's a big one in memoir, of course. Uh, and then in Linda Joy and I, in our memoir classes, we talk about the what happened draft, because in memoir, a lot of times it's just about figuring out like what actually did happen, sorting out your memories, the order of events, and in thinking about what happened, and then you're getting into the story on the page, you know, like you said, to be refined later. I think that's a super important piece of this process, especially for anybody entering into NanoRimo, that you not get into like, oh, I have to get into revisions and edits at this point, you know, just get it on the page. And we recently had Prince Shakur on and he was talking about reflection. And I just want to use that by way of example to explain because a lot of times in memoir, students are not great at reflection, or it doesn't come to them naturally. Of course, there are always students who naturally do it. But when students struggle with that as just an example, like they might do a full pass on the what happened, and then do second pass to infuse reflection into the story. And there's like kind of layering in process that happens. And so in this way, I think that writing is a lot like having a canvas you know and that the first draft that raw danger shitty draft whatever you like to call it is that uh just the, that sketch right the first layer of canvas there's what you see and the elements of of what's going to be there and then the craft is the color and the texture and the final touches that get layered in over time to create that final version and I think if you're diligent then ultimately that will be your masterpiece but you certainly don't do it in the first pass
1: that's beautifully said, Brooke. And I love these concepts of danger draft, what happened draft, reflection draft, discovery draft. You know, in some ways, that, that the kind of metaphor... Um, or image that those titles of the draft evoke are much more helpful than first, second, third, fourth, Mm -hmm. fifth draft, you know. Uh, It's kind of interesting to have that kind of emphasis on different drafts. And yeah, I mean, craft is uh, just a tool set, you know, for the mechanics of the story and the craft of a story. I, I think of the craft also, you know, holding a lot of kind of existential and aesthetic and cultural elements as well. They're just embedded in your kind of craft decisions. And I'm sure that craft can be a way into a story, a lens for a story. But yeah, I, I, I just I think those those titles that you gave it are, are so much better because I think it's it's just a way that you know when you're when you're writing like the what happened draft you're you're essentially trying to feel your story and trust your story and inhabit your story and and not get hung up on the mechanics of the storytelling. And, and this reminds me a lot of when I've talked to people who are big researchers of their novels, and sometimes they will research a novel for years. And Mm -hmm. so, (laughs) so they become professional researchers. They don't become novelists. And I think the same thing can happen with craft is that people can become craft experts without actually applying craft to the page. So my advice in the end is to think of craft to the degree it helps you move through a first draft. But if it's blocking a path in any way, toss craft into the wind and just write your story. You know, you're going to forge your craft with your words. And I know Andrea is very conscious of writing with a sense of how to keep the tension high and the pacing tout. So I'll be curious to hear how much of that she accomplishes in the first draft and how much happens later in her vision.
0: Yeah, me too. And I think this is, you know, why writers get often asked about process because it's so eye-opening and other writers love to hear about writers who've been published like what their process is and it is permission giving like I was saying earlier and I know a lot of writers who struggle with so many voices of doubt imposter syndrome you know who worry about family fallout or whether they're good enough or whether their story matters you know it's always the case that you're going to find more reasons not to write than to write and you know like the last few years ever since I published my last book, actually, I've been circling the idea of like, what is my next book? And I even gave up on a book last year. So I count myself among those writers with those voices in my head. You know, I know what that's like. And I know you do too, Grant. And I just think that we can never hear enough of this kind of encouragement to just go for it to remember that you have those skills naturally baked in remember that you can revise and refine over time uh, and that this is the actual literal process and expectation when it comes to a book-length manuscript. So for all of you diving into NanoRimo this month, uh, we're here. And Grant, let's hear Andrea on this stuff and more, and we'll be back shortly right after our interlude.
1: Hey, everyone. I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One... Part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel, because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. That's about 1,700 words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe NaNoWriMo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and and honing your discipline to, to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, Nanorimo. It takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So yeah, write with others, have fun writing. Also write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So sign up for that midwife. It's all free on NaNoWriMo.org. I'll see you in November in Nanoland. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Andrea Bartz, who burst onto the mystery thriller scene with her best-selling debut novel, The Lost Knight, which received multiple starred reviews and was named a Best Book of 2019 by Real Simple, Marie Claire, Glamour, Hello Giggles, and more. And Andrea actually started that novel during NaNoWriMo, which we're very proud of and I want to hear more about. Uh, her follow-up thriller, The Herd. Uh, which Wall Street Journal Magazine called a wonderfully gossipy thriller about feminism, friendship, and foul play was featured on numerous best books lists as well. Now, Andrea invites readers to travel with her to far-flung places with best friends Emily and Kristen in the novel We Were Never Here, which her most recent novel. Uh, But right now, Andrea is right here with us via Brooklyn. Welcome, Andrea.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: I know you started The Lost Night* during NaNoWriMo, but I'd love to hear the bigger story around it. So can you tell us uh, where you were in life and writing when you decided to write it and why you decided to write the novel during NaNoWriMo and and what your expectations were?
2: Yeah. So I had had some friends uh, sell manuscripts and become published authors. So I think that was sort of the first step that made it look doable. Uh, like something not just out of a a fantasy movie. Um, I was working as a magazine editor at the time. So, you know, I was sort of, it was in the publishing world. I was sort of book adjacent to begin with. Um, And I had just always wanted to write a book. I loved books from the time I was little. Um, You know, before I knew that magazine editing was a job, I just wanted to be an author. Um, And so I knew I wanted to write a book and I just did not have the right idea or sort of was scared to dive in. Um, And so, you know, I guess kind of coincidentally back in 2014, in maybe late summer, I started just doing a daily kind of free write, just kind of journaling about um, how frustrated I was that I hadn't found my book idea yet Hmm. and, you know, sort of following my brain into these dark corners and then going, no, that wouldn't work for this reason and talking myself out of different things. Um, And that sort of fall as the season changed and everyone, you know, feels a little bit more determined and 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 uh, serious about things, I just struck upon the idea for The Lost Night. I can see the exact moment that I did because I have it in that, you know, free writing kind of journal document. And I, you know, myself had been a 23 year old back in 2009, partying my way through kind of hipster Brooklyn mm-hmm. and being at those crazy warehouse parties where every door is open and there's wild things happening in every room. And there's, you know, a jam band and a play going on and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, what I jotted down was what would happen if after one of those wild nights, there was a dead body in one of the apartments. Um, And it was sort of a fun idea and something I hadn't seen done and sort of a world I thought I could capture. So I had an idea now, but I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, and this was October. And um, luckily, a friend of mine, Leah Conan, who is now uh, also an established thriller writer uh, with some really great books out. Uh, my friend Leah was like, hey, we both have ideas that we want to flesh out. Like, why don't we both sign up for NanoRimo, and uh, we'll have a contest. And my sister, who's also a writer, Julia Bartz, uh, her debut is coming out in February. She had an idea too. And so we're like, okay, the three of us are going to sign up for NanoRimo." We're gonna write every single day, and we're gonna have a contest. And whoever writes the most in the month is gonna be queen for the day. And you <laughs> know, will the other two will take them out and buy them drinks and tell everyone at the bar how how about their huge accomplishment? Um, so we added that sort of competitive element too. I love it. But I just had a big fear over getting started, uh, which I still feel today, which I think is sort of universal for for creators, right? Um, and Nanorima was just really key for me getting words down um and and coming out of it like, okay, I have fifty thousand words now, like there's nowhere to go but forward. I can't back up now. And I really had this conviction that I was like halfway there when, you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, I can see that I was on step one of about 3000. But at the time, psychologically, it was really helpful for me to feel like, okay, now I have now I'm in it. Now I now I have this and I want to keep working on it. And I don't want to abandon it now.
0: What an awesome success story for you and your sister, though, you know, even though you had that long journey, um, and you know, we're talking about process. And so I wanted to throw out there that I always think that thrillers have like very tight and exacting plots mm-hmm. and that thriller writers are planners or outliners, uh, but you write what you call an exploratory draft. So can you tell us about the nature of the exploratory draft and was that part of that original NaNoWriMo process? And then, you know, how do you manage to write good craft if you're writing in your genre?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm kind of like a chaotic neutral writer. I still (laughs) essentially do NaNoWriMo with every one of my books, but it's a little bit less intense. I mean, now I sell a book to my, you know, I've always worked with the same editor. So I sell a book based on the idea. She gives me a deadline that's like 18 months in the future. And then I work backwards to figure out, okay, so I need a complete draft by X date. And I literally use a site now called pacemaker.co that helps me figure out how many words I need to write per day. And then I just do it. And I generally have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I have no idea what's going to come next. I have no idea how this any particular scene is going to end. I wish I could be an outliner. I have so much uh, respect for those who do. But for me, the first draft is all about figuring out the characters, the situations, the motivations, some of those big key things that are going to happen. And then once I have that, um, and you're correct, I say, I say exploratory draft. I used to call it a vomit draft. And somebody told me that was a mean thing to call your, your first draft. And so <laughs> I, I, I give it a much more loving name now. Uh, but once I have that, that's sort of like me doing my outline. That's my step of me figuring out uh, what the major pieces are. Uh, And from there, then I kind of go back to the beginning. And then I make an outline and sort of a scene list based on what I have. And I move things around and I figure out the new things that need to happen. And I figure out, you know, pacing wise, okay, this, I had this happen two thirds of the way through, but this is really my midpoint twist. So this really needs to happen 50% of the way through. So I just think, you know, there's a lot of talk of like plotter versus pantser people who outline versus people who write by the seat of their pants. And I think it's, it's kind of a false equivalency because, they're, they're doing the same thing. It's just that the outliner does it first and then starts writing and the pantser like myself does it by writing. Like we're we're all just trying to figure out sort of that first shape of the story and, you know, remaining flexible around it. So I've done it enough times now that I kind of know when a major emotional beat needs to, to hit. And I have a sense of that. I use the save the cat outline beat sheet, um, And, you know, there's story engineering, there's superstructure, there's others that all kind of, you know, are different ways of using the same three-act structure. Uh, And so because of that, I will know, like, okay, I'm 45,000 words into this draft. Something big is about to happen. And it's kind of fun for me because, like, the twists and reveals and many of the surprises just, like, pop out of my fingers as I'm writing the scene before. And so I think a lot of the fun and a lot of the reason that hopefully the, the reveals and twists feel surprising is that they're big surprises to me. I think it's very funny when a reader says, Ugh oh, I saw the twists coming from the first page. And I'm like, really? Can you help me with my next book?
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you said that, Andrew, because I often tell people that the, the rough draft, the exploratory draft, the vomit draft, whatever you want to call it, it can be viewed also as a planning tool, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you put that in that context, that it's just about whether you outline before or after that draft and the preferences involved. Absolutely. So that is uh, super cool. On the topic of, of exploration, uh, I want to talk a little bit about techniques of exploration because I read that you use the Pomodoro method. So I was wondering if you can explain what that is and then tell us exactly how you use it and how, how it helps you explore your story, you know, and I was thinking it's not just a first draft st- tool? You might use it in other drafts as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I use it for drafting and I use it for revision and I use it kind of anytime. I just really need to focus. Um, So the Pomodoro method is basically this uh, kind of productivity tool or method where you do 20 minutes of focused work and then either a five or 10 minute break and then you repeat. Um, And For me, I use a website that's tomato-timer.com because uh, I don't want to have my phone timing me in the room. My phone needs to be in another room. And, you know, I hit start. And then the idea is I have to write until it dings. I cannot do anything but write. And if I truly can't come up with anything for that scene, then I have another tab open. I do all my writing in Google Docs. Um, And I open the other tab, and that's my free writing document. And into it, I write. Again, it's kind of a journal into it, I write, I have no idea how this scene is supposed to end. I don't know why this character is in this room. I need to figure out whatever. And there is something about the act of having my fingertips moving on the keyboard that just inevitably helps me come up with something to move the plot forward. I mean, we all know the phrase, like, you can't edit a blank page. I just need something that will move me on to the next scene. Uh, And sort of like, you know, brick by brick, that's how you build a house. So um, I... Find that it's just a way for me to really efficiently uh, hit my daily word count goal. Um, these days, as a full-time writer, it tends to be well. Let's see. I had to write the herd really quickly just because of deadlines, and so I think I was writing about eleven hundred words a day, uh, which is kind of in the in the realm of the nano numbers.
1: Definitely. These
2: days, it's about half that because I have basically <laughs> twice as much time to write books, which is much more relaxed. Um, but I'm trying to write you have five to 700 words a day. And what's really incredible is that without fail, no matter how stuck I am, no matter how much I don't feel like writing, even if I'm sick or I'm hungover, I'm exhausted or whatever, it's only 20 minutes at a time. You're just writing until that timer goes off. And, you know, it's actually incredible. Some days I can hit that word count goal with just two or three Pomodoro, Pomodoros. um, And then, then off I go. So it's sort of the same idea as a writing sprint. Uh, But for me, it's just the sort of structure of the 20 minutes on five minutes off, you know, rinse, repeat, that works really well.
0: Nice. Love that so much. And I want to take you back to the uh, earlier question where you were saying that after that first draft was done and NaNoWriMo was over, you didn't realize how much work you had left to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so without a big event like that, I mean, thank you for explaining that process with Pomodoro. And I know you were saying there's like these little, maybe mini NaNoWriMo's or that's your process. But can you talk about like the goal deadline approach? Is that part of your process as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, my editor gives me a deadline that's impossibly far out in the future. It's just impossible for me to think about. Uh-huh. Um, and so I would never get it done if I just knew like, oh, I have until whatever, spring 2024. So instead, she gives me a date and I just uh, give myself plenty of time in chunks. So my basic process is I write a complete mess of a first draft uh, and then I, I try to put it aside for at least a week or two and then I spend... A few weeks revising it on my own with just like what I have figured out was not working, what I need to go back and add, stuff that I need to seed, stuff I need to rewrite to make it all kind of fit. Um, and at this point, I always like feel pretty good about it, and then I send it to my beta readers, and I give them generally a month uh, is is a number we all feel like we can we can keep when we're exchanging this this uh, favor back and forth. So they need a month with it. They get back to me, and then I'm. Horribly depressed for a few days because I have learned everything that is wrong and I think this book is terrible and it's never going to work and I can't do it. Um, so, a few days for moping and feeling, you know, self pitiful. And then I start working on it and um, do another big round of revisions on my own, which takes about a month. And then um, generally, it's time to uh, turn it in for the first read from uh, my editor. And then It's kind of, again, like a a rinse-repeat thing where I'll get the notes from the editor, get a new date for when I need to do the revision, and I need to build in time for me to do what I think will work, but then send it to my beta readers again and get their feedback and then scrap a lot of the stuff that I thought was a solution but actually is not and edit it. So um, I feel like I might be making this sound more complicated than it is, but basically (laughs) I have these chunks of time and I know... uh, I know what these sort of earlier benchmarks are that I need to hit. And so they're not real deadlines because like in my professional life, my editor and agent have no idea where I am in the process at this point. Um, But I know, okay, I need to have my first draft done by X date so that I can send it to my beta readers at this date, whatever, five or six weeks later. Um, And I have sort of those uh, built-in deadlines that I'm working towards throughout and, yeah, deadlines are super motivating, and I don't know how anyone could get anything done without them. That was sort of the the benefit of NaNoWriMo, that it gave me this, you know, by the end of the month, I'm going to have this.
1: That's so cool to hear. And I'm actually very impressed by the organization of your writing rhythms and feedback rhythms within this process. Um, and I'm also intrigued by the moment... In, in your process, when you said that you were you were horribly depressed by that kind of initial feedback that you received and i 'm always interested in this the moment where a writer receives feedback and how sometimes writers are shut down by that feedback and and I know that um the lost night actually received some rejections when it was being initially submitted to editors. And rejection is such a big part of writing, so I'm I'm curious, you know, what you you learned. A couple editors asked you to re- revise and resubmit your novel, so it was an opportunity. But but what did you learn from that initial reaction and rejection, and how do you you apply it to the revision?
2: It's a great question. And you say some editors rejected it. I say I say all. Um, <laughs> I had sort of had some false confidence because after tons and tons of revision, um, tons of scrapping stuff, rewriting, putting the blood, sweat and tears into The Lost Night, um, I queried agents with it and was very fortunate to have several who uh, offered representation pretty quickly. And so I sort of started to think like, okay, it's all happening, like we're doing it. And my uh, wonderful agent went out with it. She had this first round that she felt really good about. She kind of, you know, agent's jobs at that point is kind of to, to butter you up. So I was feeling really confident as she went out and she was like, OK, great. I'll let you know as soon as I hear something. And uh, then there was crickets. And when I checked in, she said, OK, so far, it's only been rejections, but there's still some I'm waiting on. And I made the interesting choice to ask to see the rejections. Mm. Um, And she just sent them over. Uh, And, you know, everyone is, they were all polite and sort of kind because they all have, these editors all have a professional relationship with my agent that they want to preserve. But it was just, they all disagreed. They were, you know... Some people said, a couple people said, you know, I feel like Andy should be writing, you know, literary fiction, not, not thrillers, or it's not, enough of a th- it's not enough of a thriller to be a thriller. It's not enough literary to be a literary. Um, and there's just nothing I could do about any of this feedback. And it was horribly sad. Hmm. So we got to a point where everyone in that initial group um, had said no, except for two editors who said, well, I can't buy it as is, but I would be willing to look at it again um, if she made some major revisions. And, um, so my agent said, are you willing to talk to them? And I said, of course, but like, what am I going to do if their feedback differs? And she said, I don't know, because I've never had this happen before, which is not something that you want to hear from your like very established ICM agent, uh, senior agent. So I talked to them both and mercifully, luckily, not coincidentally, their feedback was actually very overlapping, um about what was working and what wasn't and because these weren't my editors yet they couldn't be a part of the solution process right there they were there to tell me everything that wasn't working and then it was sort of like and good luck like Mm. they're not there to sort of troubleshoot um and so I took in their feedback I really thought things through I went back to my my wonderful beta readers who to whom I owe so very much And I just put my all into a revision. And I knew um, from my agent and from other people that, you know, there's absolutely no guarantee that a revise and resubmit request is going to result in an offer of a book contract. Um, It's pretty common, actually, to try it again and to have the editor say, you know, thanks so much, but no, I'm going to pass. But I... Put my heart and soul into it, and um thank God, when we resubmitted it pretty quickly the one the one editor of the two who had always seemed more interested uh, made an offer quickly, and she's the editor that I'm still working with now five plus years later. But yeah, there's constantly parts of this process, even now, even you know i've I've been so lucky to have so many of the things happen that we think will be the thing like once i have that happen like it's all good like my first book was a people pick of the week in the magazine that was amazing and then i still focused on everything that you know the mixed reviews or or how it didn't hit a list and then my most recent book we were never here it was a reese's book club pick and it and it was a new york times bestseller and i still could you know can can get really pulled down by some you know mean review of a random person on on instagram who hated it um and then throughout the actual process, there's just so many stages. There's so many times in the process where I'm lying in bed and staring at the ceiling at night, and I'm like, it's just never gonna happen. Like, this is the book that I'm gonna have to return the advance and tell them I can't do it. Like there is just no way for me to land all of these planes that I have like thrown up in the air for this book. So I just try to sort of normalize that because somehow, by some miracle, like the books keep ending somehow, like I eventually end up there.
0: Well, in closing, Andrea, National Novel Writing Month is upon us this week. So do you have any parting words of advice for writers or anything you wished you had known that first time you did it way back when?
2: Yes, I am so excited for everyone who's about to do it. Like you are about to embark on a huge adventure. Um, And it might feel intimidating, but it's also just really exciting. And I will share the piece of advice that, again, I got to give a credit. My friend Leah Conan, great thriller author, she gave me uh, in the days leading up to NaNoWriMo. So I mentioned that I had this idea for a book that was like basically a hipster murder mystery. And this was back in 2014. So I don't know if you guys remember this, but like in 2014, we really hated the hipster. They were at like peak you know, repulsion. <laughs> we were so sick of them. Gawker wouldn't even use the word anymore. And so I was like, this is crazy. Like, why on earth am I going to write a book that is focusing on this topic that everyone has agreed we should not talk about? And I just was like, I don't, you know, that'll hurt me when I'm trying to sell it. Like, people are going to hate it. Our reviewer is going to focus on that instead of the book. Uh, But I knew I wanted to write it. It was like the one idea that I was excited about. And my friend Leah, she said to me, look, take off your editor hat, take off your will this sell hat, take off your, take off all of the different voices that are, you know, telling you why you should not do this book and just write and just let it be wild. And just, it's like, you know, doing wheelies in a big old empty parking lot. You can just have fun with it. And that's the whole point of NaNoWriMo. And that was So empowering, and the thing that she and I still constantly remind each other of because uh, it's easy to lose sight of that. But you cannot be worrying about whether your topic is going to be hot years from now when you, you know, when this book is in a different place. You cannot be worrying about, um, you know, how you're going to get certain things perfect later on. All you can do is sit down and put words on the page and just have fun with it.
1: I love that, Andrea, especially that um, image of doing wheelies in the parking lot with your writing. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Andrea. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
1: We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
0: So Grant, this trend was an eventuality that I have been waiting for, and now it's arrived, which is that Spotify is selling audiobooks. And the writing was on the wall here as of last year when Spotify purchased Findaway Voices, which was already a major force in the audiobook space. So now when you log on to Spotify, in addition to music and podcasts, you also get a library of over 300,000, yes, that's I'm reading that right, uh, books. So I'm curious, Grant, have you checked this out uh, or listened to an audiobook on Spotify yet.
1: Yeah, I noticed the Spotify move in the, into that book space as well. And as, as you said, this is completely natural for them. And in fact, Find Way Voices uh, has also been a sponsor of NaNoWriMo. So I've been tracking this for a while and expecting it But I haven't listened to an audiobook on Spotify, and that's because I have an account with Libro FM, which serves independent bookstores. So there's my plug. It wasn't paid for. (laughs) Uh, But I'll probably try out Spotify. Um, I'm curious, Brooke, what should writers and authors know about being on Spotify or selling on Spotify? Or is it all free?
0: Well, right. It's not free. So basically, if you're an indie author who wants your books on Spotify, you can upload your work to Spotify directly. Um, I, I guess that's an interesting question. We'd have to look into if there's like a base level charge. Obviously, you're revenue sharing with Spotify when you do that. Mm-hmm. But I did make some discoveries uh, as I was looking around. I was poking around just like looking for our own stuff <laughs> initially. And is, uh, it turns out that you and I both have audiobooks. Your pep talk for writers and my write-on sisters but they are not up on Spotify. So that's something to put on our to-do list. Um, I do think it's safe to say that Spotify entered into this space to try to dominate the listening space. And so they clearly already had the corner on the music market, and then there was this explosive growth in podcasts, and you and I witnessed that firsthand when we started seeing our metrics and that many more of our listeners to this show were coming from Spotify than from any other platform, which is interesting, and now audiobooks, and the platform looks good. I mean, I found the searching capacity really easy, uh, and like we discussed in a recent Recent trend about Goodreads: a lot of consumers are consciously choosing not to use Amazon. So there's a move away from Audible, and like you said, maybe to FM or, in this case, Spotify.
1: Yeah, I've actually uh, shifted to Spotify personally. You know, so I listen to, to my music and my podcasts on Spotify, and I have to say that I love the product for my listening needs. So there's a reason for its popularity, and I also see the appeal of having one big listening hub for all of your needs. Uh, There are some downsides, though. I don't think you can rate or comment on things like you can with Apple. And another thing that's different about Spotify's audio offerings is it's selling audiobooks a la carte rather than offering a subscription service. Uh, There's actually a thorough piece that came out in The Times last month about this, and the article said that executives declined to detail the revenue-sharing model with publishers but said that prices will vary per title and will be in line with other retailers.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. And I think we'll be hearing some noise from publishers as that starts to become, you know, uh, ultimately, will have to become a little bit more transparent. Um, But that does seem to be the biggest gamble or what most people are talking about right now, which is whether Spotify users uh, themselves, the listeners who are used to streaming music and shows and podcasts for free, uh, or through a monthly subscription will react to purchasing books a la carte. But you know, my sense is that people will adapt because... I have to confess that I currently use Audible. (laughs) It's it's Mm -hmm. definitely a holdover. You know, once you get on something, sometimes it's easy to stay. Uh, But I'm interested in switching over to Spotify. I like buying books a la carte because I have a subscription, but I every single month exceed my subscription. So I think as long as the books are price competitive, then Spotify is likely to possibly change their competitors' business models. So we'll see.
1: Well, they're certainly positioned well to shake up the space. The Times reported that Spotify has 188 million paying subscribers globally, and that getting even a fraction of those subscribers to buy audiobooks will mean millions of new listeners for books. So so this is great. you know. And Brooke, time for us to get Pep Talks for Writers and Write-On Sisters up on Spotify, right?
0: Yeah, it's definitely time. And also, listeners, thank you. Let us know if you've started listening to audiobooks on Spotify and what that experience is like. And if you're an indie author like us who's not up on spotify yet join us in getting yourself up there uh grant i know we both said we have nothing but positive things to say about find away voices and if spotify is growing indie authors present and future needs definitely need to be a part of that growth so uh, i want to thank spotify for being part of the growth of right-minded and to all of you for listening uh, and for those of you doing naNoWriMo this month you've got this
1: Yeah. And if if you're not yet doing NaNoWriMo, you can still sign up. There's still time. In fact, sign up anytime during November if you want. A goal and a deadline are Creative Midwife. Uh, It's free. So you've got a novel to gain and nothing to lose. So I want to see all of our listeners in NaNoWriMo land. Well, you will also find more episodes of Right Minded. So keep writing, keep listening, and we'll see you next week.